Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we start, a content note. This episode contains accounts of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse and racism. You'll also hear some swearing. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the last episode of Season 3 of American Prodigies. You made it. We made it. We're here. I talked to a lot of people this season, especially gymnasts. You heard stories from Olympians Jordan Childs and Betty Okino, trailblazers like Angie Dankins and Joyce Wilborn, collegiate superstars Nia Dennis, Sofina De Jesus, and Hallie Mosette, and young athletes hoping to be the next generation of sensational Black gymnasts. We reported on the joyful and the uncomfortable, and the fucking maddening, from victories at national championships to hiding food at the Olympics to white coaches cutting black girls' hair. On today's episode, I talk with our story editor, Jessica Luther. We recap where we've been and talk about the gymnasts and topics we wished we could have covered. And then we try to answer the question that's come up again and again throughout this series. Is the sport of gymnastics compatible with just work for black women? How could it be? Let's start by looking back on what we were able to cover this season. We covered a fucking lot. Yeah. So you talked to so many people. When you think back on it, Amira, what was one of your highlights in creating this season? I mean, honestly, just interviewing people and forming a bond and a connection and in the conversation that we had, you know, of course, Betty Okino was such a delight to talk to because we just had a very kind of similar energy and we were talking about a lot of different stuff. What was your favorite um, meal your grandmother made you? Oh, so I don't know. Have you ever had like Romanian food? Probably not. I had it once. You did? What did you have? I have no idea. I had potatoes in it. (laughs) (laughs) That's like Which might be every Romanian dish. It is. Not all of it was funny. A lot of it was really heavy, in fact. But there was just this kind of camaraderie that it felt like in the conversation. And and that really extends to so many people I talked to. There was a moment in which one of the kind of viral sensations we were talking to was giving an answer and stopped and said, that's a very media trained answer. Do you want the real one? I said, yes, that's what we're doing here. (laughs) Always. (laughs) You know, but... Honestly, every time somebody said, I've never said this story before, made me feel like we really created a show and a space in which stories could be told um, that weren't easy, but were true and, and deserve to be listened to and recognized. And I think that at the end of the day is 
all I could have asked for. And so all of my highlights are extension of, of that fact, whether it's Angie Dinkins, me trying to be diplomatic and, and talk around this kind of messy book that Jennifer Say wrote. And I'm trying to be super diplomatic about it. And I'm talking about generosity. And she interrupts me and she goes, You talking about Jennifer Say? Girl. You know, she worked out with me, honey. So I grew up with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Child, guess what? That troll didn't bother me. Not one bit. Not one bit. <laughs> it was just perfect. It was just like, oh, we're going there. Yes. Yeah, well, I think this is one of your great skills is your ability to bring this out in people as you're talking to them. And I think there were so many great moments when I think back on like all the audio that we have listened to and I will never not laugh at you and Sophina and hip hop moves. And then she went into her hip hop moves. (laughs) And salutes the crowd. Okay, can't take oh my it. God. <laughs> and then she went it. into her hip hop move. It's so funny how people like say those things. It's like, huh. And I think about yeah, with Betty, I, that I great moment where she's searching for a, a simple word. I wanted a voice. I wanted to speak out. I wanted to like be emotional and for it to be okay. I wanted. Um, I just wanted. I wanted more, and it was very restricting. I wanted the opposite of restricting. Yeah. You wanted freedom. I wanted freedom. It's the way she repeats the word freedom back to you. There's so much emotion in it. Uh, it it's just a, a beautiful moment. And you had so many of those with all these people that you've talked to throughout this season. And I think I'm really going to carry that forward with me. I would be remiss not to mention uh, the production team going to the GOAT tour as a highlight. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think that it was so great to get together after, you know, half a year of building this thing and to be able to go down to Houston to see each other and take in the goat tour and talk to the little girls. What do you think this show is going to be like? Goat. Amazing. Yeah. So amazing. I think it's going to be a pretty spectacular night. It's going to be pretty awesome because these are some of the people who have been on the Olympic team for a couple years. So, and we've seen them level up while we've been leveling up in our gymnastics too. So that'd be pretty cool. Every piece of that trip, I think, was really important, not just for the tape we picked up and not just for... Um, that kind of experience of, of witnessing the tour and all the emotions it brought off in all of us for different ways, but also just the bonding that happened between the four core people on our production team. That's Jessica Bodiford, Kelly Hardcastle Jones, me, and and you, Jess. And I think that being able to be in that moment together was exactly the fortification we needed to carry some of these stories in the way we did and to carry the, to have the empathy and the tenderness and and the precision that we needed to, to cut this tape and to be in alignment about what we wanted from this show together. If you're listening to this show, you wouldn't necessarily know that that's a highlight, but it absolutely produced everything that you're hearing. And and I'm just eternally grateful for the team that we had. Yeah, you're right. It solidified so much for us as we were really thinking through what we wanted this season to say. And when you were talking about the energy at the GOAT tour, that's so funny to me because when I think 
I, of course, think about the routines and me crying about all of them. <laughs> but I really, the, the sound that I remember are, are all the little girls screaming. And they're screaming with joy and enthusiasm. And they're just so happy to be there. And when I think on the GOAT tour and like that Simone made that for them and that I can feel that when I think about them screaming and she's going to cut this because we know her too well. But it was also very fun to see Kelly Hardcastle Jones, our former gymnast, like lose her mind at the GOAT tour. (laughs) Absolutely. You can buy this jacket at the merch stand if you want. Oh, I will. So, so much of what was covered in this season were athletes and events that you, Amira, knew a lot about and have thought a lot about in your career up to this point. I really feel like this season dovetails perfectly with so much of the amazing work that you are doing, will be doing. Was there anything that came up during an interview or during research that you didn't see coming that like genuinely surprised you? I don't know if surprise is the right word. I'm blown away constantly by how illogical racism is, mm. right? And and how illogical all the ways people can harm people are. And I just told the coach, if I ever find out someone put their hands on my child again, it's going to be a lot of problems. It wasn't the statement, I mean, she's Black, so she should be able to fight or something like that, or protect herself. Yes. Well, I told you that because you wouldn't understand between the lines. He looked at me and he st- and he got this really mean look and he said, she don't look like she can't fight. Like, basically, you don't need any protection because you're black. And so right there told me that you were not going to be safe at that gym. That's wild. Or some of the microaggressions that people relayed about things said to them, their gym or logics that people used or. Jasmine getting her hair touched as a judge at meets. Well, see, like those things don't surprise me because people be touching black women's hair all the time. But a judge at a meet. I think it was more so the little things like not knowing that Betty could understand Romanian. Yeah. Which is so clear and so dumb. My question has always been, why was it assumed that you didn't if your mom... Why do you think? I know why, but I want to... Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know? This is why it was assumed, because I do not look like I would speak Romanian. Just like Kobe does not look like he could speak German, Italian, French. I also think that just hearing the way that former gymnasts recite their injuries. Oh, that it's like, oh, here are all of my broken bones. Yeah. As if it's just like a thing that most people. Yeah. Because like I'm somebody who's had, I broke a fair share of bones and I've had a fair amount of surgeries. Like, you know how you go to the doctor and they give you a form for former surgeries. I never have enough lines. Right. So I feel like I'm fairly like cavalier about that as well, where I'm just like, yeah, I had this and then I had an appendectomy and then I had a bilateral fasciotomy. Da, 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 da. But I think that it was surprising to me how often I heard this kind of simple regurgitation of, of bodily pain 
in a way that was like this, just the sport is different, right? Well, I had like a disc herniation around 10. I hurt myself at the Crowley camp at one of the competitions. I actually tore my Achilles the year of the Olympics, just three months before. And I knew the second that I did my beam disc, I was like, something's wrong, something's wrong. The gymnastics doctor looked at my x-ray and was like, oh, you're fine, um, just take it easy. The second surgery's over, it's like, okay, what can we do to try to stay in shape and make it the easiest recovery process possible? Not just easiest, but like the fastest, trying to get back out there, you know? And I think the last thing that took me aback was how many people were unable to speak or hesitant to speak or spoke and said, I'm never going to talk about this again because of the trauma they're carrying from the sport. And I'm talking about both people we interviewed, but I'm also talking about people who have just messaged me and gotten emotional about this. I was on Amanda Seals' podcast and in real time, I was like sharing a story from the show and she got choked up because she started to remember something she had never remembered in that way. And I think that was something that made me pause because I deal with a lot of people recalling a lot about various sports, but I've never dealt with a sport that seems to so intensely have left so many scars visible and not. And that even people who are listening and receiving this podcast are needing to process their own relationship to a sport they gave years to. And watching that happen over and over and over again with people we've talked to and people who just comment because they've listened to it, I thought I knew what toxic sporting spaces look like and how they impacted people. But I think that this gave me a greater depth of understanding of what it looks like to emerge from these spaces and the things you carry with you as you move on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So we made the third season of a show called American Prodigy. We changed that to Prodigies as we were figuring out what we wanted this season to look like, the scope of it. We wanted to include a, a bunch of gymnasts. When we look at what we were not able to include this season, though, I want to start there with the gymnasts. Are there gymnasts we didn't get to do a deep dive on that you wish that we had had more space and time for? 
For sure. There's so many. Um, I'll, I'll earmark two, really. Lucy Collins, whose sister actually this morning of the time we're recording this, just sent a message and said, thank you so much because I am better able to understand why my sister doesn't want to talk about this and her experience so publicly. Tasha Swiker, of course, is is the other um, gymnast that I am just drawn to. She made the 2000. 2000, Olympic yeah. Olympic team. Mm-hmm. And just the way in which she was talked about from her coach to her own mom, calling her the Dennis Rodman of the sport. They talked about her as this kind of like rebel um, and this like bad girl of gymnastics, like Michaela Skinner could never. (laughs) And I just feel like there was a lot to unpack there about Tasha and about her racialization in the sport. And this idea about like what what made her like the bad girl of gymnastics was that she was vocal, but like not even ridiculously vocal, just like a little bit vocal, right? But she also has this kind of like insider outsider vibe to her and then became like one of the faces that USAG was like really using and especially used when abuse allegations started coming forward to shield their own institution, they actually wrote a quote from her about she felt happy in gymnastics and circulated it everywhere with her image, which I find unconscionable. And then Tasha, along with her younger sister, Jordan, came together very publicly to talk about being also um, victims of, of Larry Nassar. And the fact that Tasha then went on, you know, with her law degree to be on the committee of survivors that helped deliver the settlement is just beyond poetic. I know there are other topics that we wish we could have covered. We talked about this a lot during this season. Will you walk me through some of those? Yeah. And I think this is actually a really great transition because one of the other gymnasts I would have loved to talk about is Jair Lynch, who was a black male gymnast on the 96 team in Atlanta in the black newspapers at the time, they were like, Dominique, Jair, we're taking over gymnastics. (laughs) And I love that. And I really wanted to talk to him about that moment in 96, but also being positioned with Dominique in this way and what it meant to be a black boy in gymnastics. And of course, as we collected these stories, it became very clear to us that in order to do justice to this work, we really need to center on Black girls and, and Black women um, because we already had so much tape we were leaving on the cutting room floor on this, that topic alone. But there's a huge piece here about sexuality, about gender presentation, um, about the experience of Black boys in the sport, how that runs into and brushes up against our idea of masculinity. And I hope to be able to spend some time uh, in the future thinking about what this sport meant for Black boys and Black men and what it continues to mean. That also, you know, has me think a lot about sexuality. We talk about in this podcast the way that we've seen gymnastics shift and how they think about difference and how they think about diversity. And that shift is intention and it's always being pushed back against. But one of the things that we also see, of course, is like pride nights mm-hmm. and, and meets happening now. There's still a kind of um, way that 
a lot of gymnasts aren't comfortable coming out. Well, this goes to your point about gender presentation within the sport. It's still so incredibly heavily gendered in ways that I could see being (laughs) making it difficult to want to publicly disclose. Exactly. Exactly. And shout out to the Half In Half Out pod, which has been doing great work on queerness and gymnastics. I think that those conversations are really important. Of course, I really want to layer them with conversations about race. Like I, I think that we do a disservice when we have these kind of conversations siloed. So the only gymnast um, on the women's side who was actually out during these past Olympic Games in Tokyo was Caitlin Ruskrantz, who's a Black woman from South Africa. And thinking about what it means to be competing as a Black or colored woman from South Africa and be out and openly out and say, hey, I'm queer in this sport, to me, is the layers of all of those differences that the sport has tried to eradicate. I mean, it reminds me of Betty saying, it's not just that I was tall, but I was tall and brown. And I think about how sexuality, you know, works within that when we're talking about presentation, when we're talking about leotards, when we're talking about how you wear your hair, right? Infantilized bodies. Infantilized bodies, all of these things. I think that like playing up femininity, we've seen happen in conjunction with being trying to age yourself up in a sport that um, many people feel underdeveloped in or are underdeveloped because of training and what that means in in terms of like how aesthetically you display your identity and then I also of course want to dive into pride meets and pride nights the same way that we know that Black Lives Matter meets were happening while UCLA was wearing shirts with quotes from Martin Luther King and dealing with racism in their own program. And I have to believe that as much as we're seeing pride meets occurring, that there are queer gymnasts across this country in these same programs hosting meets with stories to tell. And I would love to continue to see those stories come to the fore. And I think they're absolutely part of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I also think Someone out there should do a podcast about like non-black gymnasts of color. I mean, we just had SUNY win the all around. We can talk a lot about like what their experiences are also like within the sport and within their own communities. Absolutely. I mean, you brought up Caitlin from South Africa. I do think one of the other interesting aspects, this is American prodigies. So we were absolutely um, boxed in by that first word, which was American. But I do think the international aspect of this sport and the way that these things play out in other countries, which of course have different histories and different, you know, idiosyncrasies within within their cultures that would have to be uh, contextualized. But I do, it would be interesting to hear a larger discussion of what this is like for black girls and girls of color in the sport outside of no, the absolutely. US. I mean, and you know me, like I constantly wanted to <laughs> have that discussion, you know, from seeing Melanie Dos Santos on the GOAT tour with Simone. She's from France. Um, she's actually on the French team, but she's from Martinique, um, which is a colonial history. Like which just is, that sentence alone is is fascinating. You know, yeah. Um, So, of course, Rebecca Andrade won Brazil's first gold medal on vault this summer in in Tokyo and talked about how it's important, you know, that she's a Black girl who did it. But the other people who reflected on that was like Diane Dos Santos, who was, you know, this prodigy of her own right from Brazil, 
and competed in gymnastics, won on the world stage in, in 2003 and had this kind of big Olympic light on her and was interviewed quite often about her like fun floor music or the burden of representing Brazil and what it meant to have this Black girl represent Brazil. And she talked about the weight that it put on her shoulders. And after Rebecca won, she gave a very emotional interview about how meaningful it was to see that that first medal comes at the hands of a, of a Black person from Brazil. You know, there's just an enormous possibility about these global interactions. And especially when I think of Melanie on tour, on the Gold Over America tour, with these other Black girls from the U.S. and the right. way that they're able to talk about their experiences. Because when you have like racist gymnasts saying, oh, all I need to do is paint my skin black to get a medal, that those weren't American gymnasts saying that. And the people who heard that were global gymnasts as well. It was signaling this idea about Blackness that transverses boundaries because anti-Blackness is global. And the sport of gymnastics globally has been very white. And so I think that you find a lot of parallels internationally. And I think it's a great opportunity to watch the way that anti-Blackness is working globally and the way that connections are built across cultures where you see Black people coming together across geographic boundaries and really rooted together by this shared history, uh, whether it's about colonization or Jim Crow or these legacies that are coming out of, of something that we see happening across the globe for sure. One thing that my experience in gymnastics has taught me is to just really grasp onto the things that make you feel good and hold on to the things that you're passionate about so that you can kind of grit your teeth and get through the rest of the shit that you have to deal with. I think the best way to wrap up this season is honestly to talk about our overall feelings about gymnastics at this point. You've talked to so many people who find both a lot of joy in the sport, a lot to love here, but also you've heard so many stories about racism, about harassment, abuse, eating disorders, discrimination, like on and on. I know you've asked other people on this show, but I'm gonna put it to you. If your daughter wanted to do gymnastics, would you be able to put her in at this point? I think this gets a lot to what Jessica Bodiford, our producer, she talks about in episode seven with like feeling that all of these ills are like the inevitability of all of this. Because it does feel inevitable to me. Like I want to throw all of it away. USAG, all of it. That's That's where I am. It's been proven through these interviews. And it's like, the body thing, the the eating disorders, the people making fun of their complexion, their curves, their hair, it, it, over and over and over again. Especially when you think about like, I'm talking about like these little girls who are like not Simone Biles, not Gabby Douglas, not Betty Okino, but those women went through it and they're the best. That That's what bothers me. It's like, if the best, if the goat went through it, I mean, I just don't. So yes, helplessness for sure for the average girls who just want to fly. And the final thing that this ties into, 
is probably the thing that we have discussed maybe more like the thing that we all feel as a production team here really encapsulates this season the question of this season of American Prodigies. And it came from episode five. It was your friend, the brilliant Dr. Sam Shepard. This is an episode about Gabby Douglas. And in it, Sam said, Do we want a bunch of black girls running into this sport? Is that what we want? Perhaps this sport is not compatible with doing just work for black women. How could it be? So Amira, do we want that? Do we want black girls running in it? Would you put your daughter in gymnastics? Does all of the ill of it, the ills in it feel inevitable to you at this point in the process? Yeah, well, first and foremost, gymnastics as a sport is not my favorite. There's too many broken bodies that has been built upon for me. It feels very frustrating to watch what people have endured. And that's just about the sport, not just about Black girls in it. Now, the question of would I let Samara do gymnastics? Samara did gymnastics um, and dealt with all this bullshit the same way she dealt with it in in ballet. And she, she left both of those. So she left the studio. She left ballet when she was old enough to get tired of being told that she needs to put her hair up when it was in braids or having parents comment about her body in a leotard, et cetera. She went back to dance though, because that's what she loved. And it's hard for me because I don't think there's many places that are compatible with Black girlhood or Black womanhood at that. I don't think institutions have the capacity to love us. I don't think they were built to. So. I don't feel any differently about gymnastics than I do ballet, than I do about academia, than I do about sports media. Um, But the capacity of Black girls and women to choose to occupy those spaces, I return to all the Black girls and women on this show who talk about feeling free in the air, and I would never begrudge them of that. I think we all carve out spaces of freedom Like Betty said, like, that's what we're searching for. And it is clear to me that there is something that for many people keeps pulling them back to this sport. Whether they're dancing on their floor exercise or they're flipping through the air and feeling weightless where none of the ills of the world can touch them. I feel like it's so fun to fly and to also get to dance. Oh, I don't know. I just kind of love this sport. I like tumbling. I like being in the air. I just, I don't know. I just love it. Like how you do those like flips and do back flips and stuff. You get to do something you love and it's, it just matters because you just love it. The same way that we carve out spaces for ourselves to feel the most authentic and the most free in doing what we feel called to do. And for every little black girl, who wants to go into gymnastics because that is what they feel called to do. And I hope we can build a space where their souls are protected, their bodies, their minds are protected while they're seeking out that freedom while they flip. And I want that for everywhere and for every institution. And I refuse to abandon gymnastics for them. That's where I land on it. 
that it doesn't really matter what the world thinks a black girl can and should and will do we will always do what we're called to do and for so many people it has been to shine in this sport and like angie said that's what's inevitable we are inevitable and that's what i believe in This season of American Prodigies was reported and hosted by me, Amira Rose Davis. Story editing and production by Jessica Luther. If you want to hear more of my interviews with guests from this season, subscribe to Blue Wire's Apple Podcast subscription channel. Along with ad-free episodes, you can listen to my full interviews with rhythmic gymnast Wendy Hilliard, physical therapist Dr. Courtney Johnson, Judge Jasmine Swinnigan, former elite and collegiate gymnast Elizabeth Price, choreographer and coach Hallie Mosette, Nia Dennis's mom, Deetra Dennis, and Brown Girls Do Gymnastics founder, Darren Moore. Search Blue Wire in Apple Podcasts for access to all the extended interviews. It's free for the first seven days. Subscribe today. Jessica Botterford and Kelly Hardcastle-Jones are our senior producers. Sound design, mix, and mastering by Camille Stennis. Isabel Jocelyn, Kayla Stokes, and Jordan Liggins provided production assistance. Fact-checking was done by Mary Mathis and Jessica Luther. Production coordination by Devin Shepard. We had research help from Shawetha Sharendran, Mariam Khan, and Mary Mathis. American Prodigies is executive produced by Peter Moses and John Yales. Turning off the car? Yeah? Okay. So, um, what are your first impressions of this place, Amira? Oh, wait, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> okay. Y'all do that. Like, I'm like, I need a break from First impressions, Jessica. <laughs> It's huge. And Simone is everywhere. And of course, she's on the front above the World Champion Center sign. There's a big picture and she's leaping. So they have the light posts with the banners that hang off of them. And she's on every one in her sort of, you know, when she lands and she does the V, the arms <laughs> out. I don't know. It looks like a V, okay? I know, it does. I know exactly what she was talking about it's when, the you v said, with when the she arms. said V. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> But there are definitely cars here, and there's a car in the owner's spot. There is a spot reserved parking for Biles that is empty right now, because we imagine she's not around at this point. But it's just kind of in a Houston suburb. Like, where you can see to the right, we can just see, like, a group of houses, like a planned community kind of. And to the left is an auto zone, and there's just, like, a split road behind us, like, four lanes split. Just right off the highway, I can see a Taco Bell and a shell from here just kind of tucked in here like any neighborhood gym, except it's the goat's gym. That was so good. I'm like, we're in a parking lot in a building.